31, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Then we'll flip over to 1 Samuel and stay there for our sermon text. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, this uh, vision, as it were, into the afterlife. Uh, Certainly, this has changed since the resurrection of Christ, but prior to Christ, uh, this is the way, or prior to his resurrection, uh, this is how things would have been. So Luke 16, verses 19 through 31 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, and let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Amen. In 1 Samuel 5 and 6 is our sermon text. 1 Samuel 5 and 6, uh, we're doing these together. Chapter 5 is pretty short, um, but they are basically one scene. Uh, in total, you have that, 33 verses, so not too bad. 1 Samuel 5 and 6. Remember last time. They were defeated in battle twice by the Philistines in chapter 4. Eli died. The glory of the Lord departed from Israel. You had uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, who is basically the opposite of Hannah with her son. Remember, Hannah greatly desired to have a son. She had Samuel. But with the end of chapter 4, you have Eli's son-in-law, or daughter-in-law, mourning uh, unto death and not caring for the birth of her son. So 1 Samuel 5 and 6 says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer, which is where the battle had taken place in chapter 4, to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon 
fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. When they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before in the presence of the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. And so it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. He struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought us the ark of God. They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, a sin offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart. Take their calves home, away from them, so they won't be distracted, Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you're returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. And the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart, 
and shut up their calves at home. They set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. And the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? To whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. You come down and take it up with you. Amen. They have Moses and the prophets, Luke said. So let them hear them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. When Jesus recites this, what he's saying is that the word is sufficient to bring salvation. Even more specifically, in that time, the word of the Old Testament was sufficient to save If that was the case then, how much more so now that we live in the light of the fullness of God's revelation with both Testaments, old and new, as Paul says in Hebrews 2. In light of Christ having come, we ought to give the more earnest heed, the earnest, the harder listening. Luke 16 teaches you that you don't need a special witness from the dead to bring you greater clarity. To bring you greater certainty, that man or woman that you know who died in unbelief. Because we all know those people, sadly. If they were to come back from the dead and tell that person who you think would maybe listen to them, that you so badly want to know Christ, the Bible says that they would fare no better. The word given is sufficient, no matter the time that one lives. To doubt this is to play wiser than God. It is to doubt His power through His Word. It is to doubt the sufficiency of His Word to bring what He promises through it. Children, the Bible is enough to give the message of salvation. 
The saints of old in the days of Samuel really had a hard time with the message and power of God. As we saw last time in 1 Samuel 4, they took it for granted. They doubted. They imagined that God could be manipulated. And truth be told, God in His Word does not need any help now. And God in His Word did not need any help in the days of Samuel. Why do I tell you that this morning that God needs no help? Because in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, the Lord defeats the enemies that His people could not. Who did they lose to in chapter 4? Two battles. The Philistines. Who does God basically go on a victory lap through their land? The Philistines. God chooses, yes, to work through His people. He even works through those who aren't His people. We see this a few times in the Scriptures as well. Yet this ought never to lead you to think that He needs you in order to accomplish His works. Recall in chapter 4, again, Israel was defeated by the Philistines twice. After the first time, remember they thought they were going to go get God to be with them. He was the, just the, the addition they needed to their, their ensemble in order for them to win. But that didn't work. They actually lost even worse the second time. In chapters 5 and 6, God actually wins anyway. He overthrows the Philistines by His own power. Children, the Ark of the Covenant was about the size of this table. And that represented the presence of God. He dwelt there. It's actually uh, to be thought of as His throne where He is seated. That was all that went into the land of the Philistines. But that was all it took. God needs no help. He doesn't need His people to defeat His enemies. Though He had commanded them and given them the means to do so and holds them accountable for not obeying Him. God does this with us as well. He very often works in spite of us in order to bring about His purposes. God also works in spite of you to bring about your repentance. Trace about, uh, just think about your own life just for a moment. Leading up to this point, you are more holy than you deserve to be and you have received more grace than you could have ever Deserved as well. And that kindness of God is meant to lead you to more holiness, to more faithfulness. Paul speaks of this in Romans 2 when he says the Lord's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, sometimes we take the Lord's kindness as a reason to relax and not live a repentant life. But God's overthrowing of Dagon... It was not to show his approval of his people and their disobedience, but to show that he would have his way whether they obeyed him or not. Of course, our understanding of the power and control of God permits us to see him ordaining disobedience to bring about his glory. The most important aspect of Christianity revolves around this very idea. God using the obedience of men or the disobedience of men to bring about his purposes. The cross of Jesus Christ, isn't it? The disobedience of many in order to lift up the perfectly righteous one. 
The crucifixion of Jesus depended on the hard hearts of men who would put him on the cross. The hard hearts of men, the hard hearts of Israel, provided the context for the Lord himself to go down into exile, to go down into Philistia and defeat his enemies. This is actually a move of his love and his patience with his people. He could have sent them into exile, but he chose not to. It's not his approval of their disobedience. That's a tough line to walk in your own life. Because let's be honest, in our disobedience, we get mercy far more often than we should. One time is far more often than we should. And we can misinterpret that as God's favor. But God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Perhaps you notice, even in uh, chapter 6, that their disobedience continues. That's at the end of our section. We'll get to that in a bit. But what happens before that? You see, the Lord afflicts the gods of the Philistines. Dagon was not their only god. Most people say he was the leader of their pantheon of gods, children. They had many gods, and Dagon would have been like the biggest one, the most powerful one. But the Lord, by the Ark of the Covenant, by his, his presence being revealed in that way, he afflicts not just Dagon. He doesn't just destroy and afflict the God of the Philistines. He afflicts the Philistines themselves. Remember, Eli has just fallen on his head and broken his neck at the end of chapter 4. He's one enemy of God who's defeated in this section. The same thing happens to Dagon. He falls on his face before the Lord God Almighty. What they had done was, was try to make a mockery of God. They were treating the Ark of the Covenant like a war trophy. It happens all the time in history where they'll overthrow the, the people and they overthrow the God of this people by implication and they take him into the temple of their own God and try to make him like this visible servant of their own gods. But he is not able to stand. Dagon is not able to stand before the Lord. It almost makes you wonder though, why didn't God just overthrow the people back in, overthrow the Philistines back in chapter 4? Well, because they handled the Lord with unholy hands. And he had to show he didn't need them. And that their disobedience would be prohibitive to their blessing, to his blessing coming to them. The people, like Dagon, like Eli, were unable to stand before the Lord. Now he shows that the powerful Philistines as well are unable to stand before the Lord. He will drive out these false gods as they were supposed to do in the promised land and bring about purification even if his people prove unwilling to do so. Chapter 6, though, is especially interesting. If you read it slowly, you might catch this idea that the Philistines are almost more faithful to God than the Israelites. That they seem to understand his ways better than Israel. Their priests and their diviners, they remember the Exodus. They instruct their leadership on how they think the Lord would remove his wrath from them. Is that something that you see in the first few, four cha the first few chapters of Samuel from God's people? No. They had, of course, 
The Philistines had done wrong in removing the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. But again, this is how warfare worked. It's just what they did. Gods were conquered, not just people. When they defeated the people, they defeated or took the God as well. But don't imagine the Lord to be passive or some victim in this. Oh no, there goes the Ark of the Covenant. Dun, dun, dun. They had no power over him that he had not first granted to them. This also points to the cross of Christ. The very words that Jesus said to Pilate. You have no authority over me except that which I have given you. The Philistines had no authority over the Ark of the Covenant except which that God had permitted. But there's a choice made in the text about what to present to the God of Israel. You could say that this is a type of repentance, a type of petition. Not saying that they became believers per se, but they're seeking God's mercy. The priests and the diviners, they say, return the ark with a trespass offering so that you might be healed. Return the ark with a sin offering. They're asking forgiveness. And these images of the tumors and the rats are to be included as well. Children, remember the plagues in Egypt? The ten plagues? Uh, the people in the Phil- in Philistia, the Philistines here, they undergo a certain type of plague, set of plagues as well. And what their, their priests, their teachers tell them to do is make images of the things that plagued you and put them in the Ark of the Covenant and send them back to the God who has done it to you. This would be like a sign of admission of guilt and submission to His power. They are agreeing with the one who had sent this scourge. You, Lord, are the Holy One. Please forgive us. Because as we heard in verse 5, the Lord had afflicted the people. The Lord had afflicted their gods. And the Lord had afflicted their land. And don't imagine that this doesn't continue. Christianity still causes chaos today. The presence of the Lord continues to go places and causes a great upheaval because He upends God's peoples and lands. You see it in the book of Acts, don't you? When the gospel goes forth, it's chaos. Cities are overturned. Idols are destroyed. You see it in the conversion of nations since then. Maybe you've known it in your own life or seen it in a family member or a friend's life where they come to Christ and things get worse before they get better. We know that they're actually getting better all along, but it makes things a lot more difficult. This upheaval that happens, it happens because the Lord is powerful and he needs the aid of no man to accomplish his purposes. This same question that's asked at the end of chapter 6 is asked throughout history. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And in verses 7 to 9, the most peculiar section in my opinion of this, these two chapters, verses 7 to 9 of chapter 6, the priests and the diviners, they give instructions... Remember, there were also priests and diviners present in Egypt. Pharaoh sought them. And they're also sought in Babylon. Right When Daniel's there, Nebuchadnezzar's like, you know, bring me my guys so I can ask them what's going on. Have the same thing here. 
They give instructions, but it's as if they're seeking evidence that the Lord would prove Himself. They had no true prophets. They had the Ark of the Covenant among them, but certainly not for peace. And yet they are able to grasp a certain level of the proper knowledge of God. They appear to understand how to approach Him better than His own people. In our confession, Westminster Confession, chapter 21, it speaks about this general knowledge, not just of God's existence, but of God's worship. Chapter 21, paragraph 1 says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He's good and does good to all and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Did you notice what they started that with? The light of nature. That is not a book of the Bible. They're saying that nature itself teaches that there is a God. And this is what the Philistines are probably tapping into. This is available by the light of nature. The fact that God is to be thought of in these ways and approached in light of them for the purpose of worship. This is what the Philistines had, isn't it? They had the light of nature. They didn't have the five books of Moses. They didn't have the prophetic ministry. They didn't have this tabernacle being built up among them and constructed by God Almighty. They had general revelation and some testimony regarding the Exodus. And yet they are able to deduce what they do. They seek further proof of this God's character in doing what they do with the cows going out with the carts. There's no other thing going on in that section. It's like they're putting, not testing God per se, but they're asking for proof. Are you the one who's done this? And God brings those cows right on home. He proved himself. Just as he had sovereignly permitted the ark to be taken, he sovereignly brought it all the way back. He guided it to be returned. What about this place that it returns? It's a priestly city. Beth Shemesh, uh, you could read about it in Joshua 21, verses 13 and 16. So there's hope, right? This priestly, the Levites are mentioned. This is going to be a place of sacrifice, going to be a place where people know how to rightly worship God. Good signs all around. But long story short, they mishandle the ark too. This seven months that the ark spends in... Um, Philistia, chapter 6, verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. It wasn't long enough for them to learn. You can find more details in Numbers 4. They had yet to learn their lesson about how to rightly handle the ark of the Lord. The Lord's victory, therefore, would not just be over the Philistines, but over those who were occupying His land in unbelief. They too are overthrown because they continue in the sins of Eli, mishandling the ark of the Lord. It's his throne, after all. It's where he sits. It's Dagon had bowed down before the Lord God Almighty, and yet his people would not. 
One writer says, in light of this section where they're punished, you act like a Philistine, and you can expect to be punished like a Philistine. This teaches us another important lesson about the Lord's power. None who are unholy and none who approach Him in disobedience will stand before Him. He will afflict them. It isn't always immediate death. You saw how He handled the Philistines in bringing plagues just as He had done in Egypt because they dared to handle His ark and to try to show Him bowing down to Dagon. But the answer to the question, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? The answer cannot be no one. The lesson is not that absolutely no one can stand before the Lord. It is that none who are unholy can stand before the Lord. Those who bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ are those who stand before the Lord. Those who have abiding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are those who stand before the Lord. Anyone who is in Christ is welcome to stand before the Lord. Anyone in the covenant, any baptized person, any person willing to submit to the sacrament of baptism is welcome to stand before the Lord. And yet, even those who are outwardly in the Lord, even those who are baptized, may actually be inwardly out of the Lord. And therefore become subject to his judgment. That's what you see with this section in God overthrowing his own people. They did outwardly belong to the Lord. But they did not come to him with holy hearts. You can be outwardly in the Lord and inwardly out of the Lord. Psalm 15 asks this question. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? That's verse 1. Verse 2 to 5 of that psalm is basically a long version that could be summarized as those who are holy. It does you no good to read passages like this and say that none are able to stand before Him. If that's the case, no one should ever take the Lord's Supper if none can stand before Him. All who come to Him seeking His mercy are welcome to stand. Those who are punished for wrongly approaching Him in His Word are not those who come in faith. There are those who come in hypocrisy, come refusing repentance, come refusing His warnings and His commands. They presume upon His grace, as we saw in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. They try to manipulate God. They don't want to serve Him. They just want to be outwardly identified with Him some way in hopes that things might go better than it goes for those people out there. There's no love there. If none can stand before the Lord, then the charge of discerning His body... Remember, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 in taking the Lord's Supper, discern the body of the Lord. Debated meaning, but let's just take the phrase as it is. If no one can stand before the Lord, then why would the Lord say to discern his body in order to rightly take the Lord's Supper? If nobody can do it, then why would he give that warning? If none can stand before the Lord, then why call us to? 
If none can do it, you're only left with two options. No one should ever take the Lord's Supper or everyone without distinction should take it. Neither one of those are true. Who is welcome? Those who say, Lord, help me as the Canaanite woman. Who is welcome? Those who say, yes, Lord, I am unworthy. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. To the one who comes in this fashion, to the one who comes to God to draw near to him through the Lord Jesus Christ and his abundant mercy, to the one who comes this way, did you hear what Christ said? Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. So I ask you, what is your desire today in coming to the Lord's table? Just think about it for a moment. Have you thought about the Lord's Supper before you saw it on the table this morning? The desire, to summarize it, is conformity to the one who feeds you. Children, when you take the Lord's Supper, you take it to be made more like Jesus Christ. May we all come as his children this morning, knowing that in ourselves we cannot stand. But in Christ we stand with great faith and we have our desires granted to us because our desires are the same as his. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, for providing Christ that we might stand before you. We stand in him. We stand with Him. We stand totally by Him, but we stand nonetheless. We thank You for the gift of faith that enables us to believe these things that are so hard to comprehend. But they're true because Your Word tells us they are. They're true. We stake our entire lives upon them that we stand before You through Christ and in Him alone. The one who has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, 